Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know it. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny, with this week's Democracy Sausage from the ANU. I'm, of course, from the Australian Studies Institute at said institution and the School of Politics and International Relations, where my co-host, Dr Maria Teflaga, political scientist extraordinaire, is also engaged, employed, overemployed, whatever the term is. Welcome, Maria. I want to change my business cards to political science extraordinaire. Yeah. Please give me yeah. new business cards. Hello, everyone. And it should say overemployed. I think so. Yeah. Actually, that's overemployed, I do, underpaid. I do, feel, I do feel overemployed. And you know what? If you want to take it up with Brian, I, I'd never say no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, you know, matters economic are, of course, uh, very uh, sort of prevalent at the moment. We're a week away from the budget as we record this. Uh, people would be preparing to go into the lockup a week away from today. Uh, for the um, for the announcement of the, the the financial blueprint for the nation for the next year and for the for the three out years after that as they're known, um, so it's uh, yeah very much economy economy all the time in terms of the the political discourse at the moment. A little bit of talk about the coronation as well, and we might come to that because we have with us uh, a, 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 a frequent guest on Democracy Sausage and one of the most valued ones. Professor Frank Bongiorno. How are you, Frank? I'm well, Mark. How are you? And hi, Maria. From ANU School of History, I should say, and author of countless uh, excellent books. Welcome, Frank. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time in politics, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, a few days out from the budget and oh, maybe the, the honeymoon's starting to, to reach its kind of conclusion, maybe. People for... always say that. The honey, this honeymoon has, <laughs> uh, has ended a lot of times now and, and yet sort of continued on as well. So That's true. It's been a very long honeymoon. Mine was much shorter than that, I have to say. In fact, it was spent, <laughs> it was spent in Adelaide apart from other places. But anyway, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> what a great place for a honeymoon. There, there's a town that's been in a honeymoon for a long time. No, I shouldn't say that because... <laughs> I'm from Adelaide, and I—that's um, why you can say that. Uh, that yeah. is why I, can I actually say really that. like but I, Adelaide. I live in Canberra now, yeah. which is which a sort is, of a permanent it, honeymoon, it's, really. It's, well, yeah, and and I mean, let's face it, like Canberra, Adelaide, it's got a lot in common. Great cities, underrated by the rest of the country. Yes, well, great wine actually. Exactly, this is one of the things. You know, I grew up in wine country in the Adelaide Hills, and and uh, it's uh, obviously you know it's got the reputation for the arts and all of those sort of things. Um, and the, and the wine industry, you know, used to be absolutely, I think it was worth about sort of 75, 85% of the, of the um, ex- wine exports, uh, wine production in Australia for many decades. Other regions have caught up now. And one of those is Canberra, of course, with, um, you know, brands like Clonakilla and, um, and others that have become well known. So um, 
Yeah, we can right. talk about that. And they've both got they've both got actually really strong traditions of um, you know liberal political reform, right? So mm. um, you know I think South Australia's colonial history is really underappreciated in this country. It, it is, and, and in fact, so famous have the some of the Canberra brands become that there were jokes I remember on Twitter as we all went into lockdown in. August 2021 about people rushing for the Connor Killer. <laughs> <laughs> there was a run on the stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the political context of this budget, though, picking up perhaps uh, in some ways your point, Frank, about the extended honeymoon. I mean, it strikes me that honeymoons in politics are, are in sort of an inherently binary concept in the sense that a government's honeymoon is proportional to the viability, popularity, sustainability, whatever you want to call it, of the alternative government. And the alternative government in this country at the moment is not travelling well. Uh, now, that may go a long way to explaining why the government you know, is in... I mean, it won with such a low primary vote and relatively low expectations and has exceeded those expectations and by the polls supposedly increased its um, primary vote quite considerably. And we've seen the primary vote of the coalition going south at the same in the same direction but uh, that's uh, that's the context in which we see this and yet we also see pretty hostile economic circumstances you know a cost of living crisis that's what everyone calls it and for a lot of people it genuinely is it's not technically a recession but for a lot of people it genuinely feels like one uh, in terms of their their own sort of economic financial viability yeah and at this stage people, are still clearly not blaming the present government for those problems. I think mm. they're, they're still seeing them as a result of external forces, uh, in some instances a result of the previous government's uh, failure to face up to some of these sorts of issues. Um, yeah, look, honeymoon's a misnomer, I think, for what we're seeing. And, and as you say, Mark, it is, I think, very shaped by the crisis in the Liberal Party. And it is a crisis. I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that that we're not just dealing here with an ordinary post-election, you know, sort of downer, which, you know, um, I, mean, we, we, I mean, all of us here would remember 2008, you know, that period, difficult period for the Liberal Party, Brendan Nelson, um, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, uh, hard times and all the rest of it. But I think we're seeing something quite... Beyond that here, I mean, the Aston by-election, I think, was one indication. Um, the polling that you referred to is another. It doesn't look like an ordinary kind of cyclical downturn of the type that that you know, follows uh, elections. It looks more serious. And, and that clearly is both an enormous benefit to the, the government, but also a kind of danger too. I mean, it can breed complacency, I think. You might think that you can do things or get away with things or get away with not doing things that in other circumstances you'd be much more careful about. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. But yes, I think the weakness of the opposition, uh, again, exposed, I think, in the, in the in recent weeks over the issue of the voice, where they look, you know, completely at sea at the moment. Mm. Now, maybe that issue will turn out well for them. We just don't know yet. But at, at present, it doesn't look great for them because they, they frankly look divided and kind of perhaps more seriously than divided, rudderless at the yeah. moment over that and a number of other issues as well. Yeah, because I, I I mean, I agree, Frank. Like, I don't think they look divided. They look super concentrated and they're really only talking to the people that are already tuned in to that, that message. And, you know, I mean, oppositions always sort of have to have that galvanising phase. But, I, I, I mean, I think you're you're right that, that it, it is not like 2007, 8 Like, at that time, 
the party had a very clear sense that they were an old government, you know, this is the Howard government, and that they had taken things too far with work choices and, frankly, avow- or disavowing work choices and just sort of allowing, you know, time to take care of things would be sufficient, right? That, you know, I think that was the strong view of the party of the time and in a way that proved to be prescient because Labor proved it couldn't govern itself in, in a nutshell to, to simplify. And that Tony sort of Abbott did eventually declare a work choices dead, buried and cremated in that order, which was always... And a lot of other promises <laughs> that he then overturned. But it, right. yeah, well, that's yes. true, but it's yes. interesting that he exactly. eventually came to the view that that needed to be exactly. said in that, in that kind right. of theatrical way, really yeah. to sort of drive home the point that they weren't going back there. And remember, he wasn't even... He was like one of the two cabinet members that was against work choices. So it mm. was a really, I think, from, from someone like Tony have it a really credible declaration and I think you're right about the the sort of the honeymoon being um like we should really unpack that term like I actually think what's kind of gone on here is that the, the government has essentially sort of acted like like your parents right who are like yep we've got a flood in the house there's there's you know we've got dangerous power situation here like you know there are several problems here kids don't touch anything whilst we try to like fix the worst problem and then move on to the next one because, you know, the government has actually ground out some important stopgap policies. I think about the, you know, I mean, the government was telling us to turn off our heaters, you know, what, like eight, eight nine months ago um, because of the, the problem with the energy sector. Uh, you know, last week they, the, a lot of their reviews have come to bear fruit and whilst the government is definitely being criticised for not going really strongly and really hard in this first term. They are actually, I think, methodically setting up the groundwork for a long run of reforms that would happen slowly over time and that would be bedded down. And I think that's um, something that's actually kind of important and something that we we were sort of talking a bit about last week, Mark, we, we were talking about the nature of promises and whether or not, you know, there's this idea that's built up in Australian politics, which I think comes from US politics because of the way their term limit systems work, that if you don't do anything in the, and, and the way their Congress and Senate works, well, if you don't, work, yeah. that's right, exactly, yeah. it doesn't work, that if you don't do things in the first hundred days, that the never going to happen. And I think if you actually look at successful governments in Australian history, that's not what they do. They they build up ideas for reform over time and they build coalitions and those reforms stay better down. Governments that don't do that see their reforms repealed. Whitlam yeah, being that, a good one, Gillard. Yeah. Tax, um, governments have to live while they're being governments. You know, They exactly. have to actually exist, uh, understand the world they're, they're living in, adjust to it, uh, identify priorities, uh, work out programs for the delivery of those things and the modification of things, and deal with uh, with the unknowns that inevitably uh, all governments are buttressed by. Just want to go back to your point about a galvanising period. I think was the term you used for oppositions. It is it is certainly true that that is what the opposition is in at the moment. I mean, if we think about Peter Dutton's logic that we can discern from the the nature of the messaging he's done. And indeed, from the messaging that has been entirely absent from, uh, you know, that we might have expected. And that is that there's only one group of voters that can remove him at the moment. Opposition leaders are very vulnerable. They, you know, history shows that, and particularly those that take over immediately after losing government. Um, there's only one group of voters who can take that job off him, and that is the, the members of parliament in his party room, particularly in the Liberal Party room. 
And that's who he's speaking to at the moment. And he's sort of almost turning it into a kind of a cult-like uh, situation where it's all about belief, belief in the in the so-called values of, of the Liberal Party. Uh, the and, and, and in his case, that interpretation of them is a very conservative uh, reading of, uh, of the Liberal Party, quite, quite different, Frank, from um, the view of Robert Menzies when he set up the party, for example. I mean, quite explicitly different. It's a much more conservative view. And we saw, and we've spoken about this before, but we saw Dutton not make any sort of acknowledgement of the voters in his first press conference when he took over as opposition leader. He didn't say, we heard the message, we've learnt... We understand the you know the you know, communities at a different place on climate change, at a different place on corruption, at a different place on women. These are the issues that that a lot of liberal voters wanted to see faster change on, and we're going to uh, go away now and sort of work on 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 how we address those. He didn't say any of that. He said we're not he even said we're we're not going after those teal seats that we lost in that process. We're going to be going after the suburban seats rather than the urban seats, and we're going to rebuild ourselves in the regions and the urban areas of the cities. And that message was again sort of reinforced after the Aston by-election, which was one of those very suburban seats. He was talking about rebuilding the Liberal Party in. And yet still, there is no no sort of um, change of direction from him. And, uh, and and we note really, going back to the point about galvanisation, Maria's point, if we think about, you mentioned Brendan Nelson before, you know, if we think about when Brendan Nelson took over and, and, and you know, there was Abbott and Turnbull, both of options for the leadership oh, at that time. And Costello initially too. That's right. Yeah. He was still there. He was running his memoirs. He was, although yeah, he'd made it pretty clear yeah. that he didn't want the that he wasn't yeah. going to do it. Um, mm. But yeah, there were a range of options that is quite different from now, right? Uh, we know that uh, um, that Nelson didn't last very long and then he was replaced by Turnbull and then Turnbull was replaced by Abbott and, you know, and on, on the cycle kind of went. Mm. This has been much more stable, but to use Maria's term as well, much more concentrated in a perhaps not a really good way. Yeah, and I think when he started talking about the appeal to regional Voters after, as it was after the Aston by-election, I think it, it, you know, that was the moment where the emperor had no clothes because they will never win an election that way, mm. and and it also just signalled how far they were from the broad church of either Menzies or Howard in in talking in that kind of way. Look, the, the approach he's taken can probably work early in a, a term of an opposition leader, but the pressure will come on, won't it? As you get into the second year and as you get closer to the next election, people are going to start worrying about their seats. Yeah, that's um, true. Can and, we actually win? Can we actually even survive? Yeah, yeah. can we win? Or, or, you know, what about my seat? Mm. That, that sort yeah. of appeal too, which, which you know, is going to have its effects in places. It does like focus the mind yeah. of the of the average backbencher, yeah. It, it does. So, you know, you can kind of get away with it at the moment, it's a gamble, I think, isn't it? Isn't he gambling on something like the kind of Rudd scenario where this Labor government proves itself unable to 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 govern adequately, or the cost of living crisis gets the better of it, or somehow Rudd is able to manoeuvre so that the voice creates some sort of crisis of leadership of the Labor Party, you know, if it were to be defeated or something along those lines. It, it, it looks like a kind of roll of the dice. And to be fair, he doesn't have too many options because, you know, the, the key problem they have is not, um, I mean, the, the government's majority is very small, but there's this huge buffer now. There's this huge But it got crossover. bigger. <laughs> that yeah, that, yeah, well, that bigger. never happened. It actually, it actually got, got bigger. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Well, it did get bigger in the Aston by-election. Mm. And, and, but there's also this huge 
this huge crossbench, this huge and complex crossbench that now sits between the coalition and any prospect of returning to government. Mm. Um, now, you know, it may be that down the track, uh, you, you could imagine some sort of arrangement between the Liberal Party and part of that crossbench to govern as a minority, some of the independents perhaps, but the Greens are never going to jump that way and they're already, what, four seats now? Mm. Um, well, yeah, yeah, they're as good as Labor seats really from the perspective of Dutton and the coalition. So it seems to me that that the narrowness of Labor's victory, the smallness of that primary vote, all of that seems a bit beside the point when you judge where the coalition and where Dutton sit at the moment. They, they just seem to me to sit a very long way from returning to government for basic mathematical reasons apart from anything else. Well, do you think, Marie, that they could, you know, going to Frank's point about how the, the views of backbenchers or the members of the party might change as they go forward, I mean, that they, they'll eventually sort of twig to this uh, reality that Dutton's position is is made safer by the process that he's gone through, but their electoral position is made more vulnerable. That that might be true for the handful of moderates that remain. But if you think about that LNP locus of the party now, uh, you know, they're not Labor seats. They're not going to Labor. They're not going to the Greens. That's that Their primary vote is so low. It was around 34%, which is the Liberal Party to govern typically needs a primary vote over 40. Okay. So, so a primary vote around 34, 35% is catastrophically low for that party. Labor got 32%. I think this is actually really important for us to kind of understand that the way the electoral map is actually really shifting. And and it's, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't um, pretend to know what's in Peter Dutton's head, but I, I sort of, I'm starting to think that questions like the voice, for example, are a bit like um, gay marriage might have been for Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison, where they were surprised when the electorate returned a yes vote. You know that mm, they thought quite decisively exactly that they thought they were onto a winner here, and perhaps and perhaps that is what. That is what the prevailing view in the the party room is because it might just be a, literally a selection effect of who MPs are talking to. Yeah, this you is, know? you know, they, they used yeah. to talk about the Canberra bubble, but politicians are subject to this sort of bubble themselves and political parties. They talk to their own like-minded constituents, their branch members, their colleagues. Uh, they reinforce each other's views on a fairly, you know, constant basis. And it appears like, that you know, We've seen it happen that you get this kind of just gradual separation yeah. from community sentiment and same-sex marriage is a really good yeah. example of that and I think it's showing up now with The Voice as well. And I, I actually think it's really revealing that they have chosen to really focus on these cultural culture war issues rather than the cost of living crisis, which is, you know, bread and butter politics. They could really do damage to the government on that. You know, the government's so vulnerable there. It's like it's in many ways it's really not the government's fault, but when in the past has that ever mattered? Never. Right? So I I think that's, and that's, you know, that's good for the government because it gives a bit of time to breathe and to think strategically, which is the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Right. If 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 the government just sort of does short term announcements, we're just going to have the same crap we've had since, oh, you know, the mid two thousands. So we are at a really kind of interesting time, and I'd be happy to see the coalition just drop this fiction of the broad church, because I don't think that's been true for a very. It's never really been true. I mean, I think this is a sort of funny discourse we have around the coalition, right? Which is which is which is actually an odd 
marriage, if you think about it. Like before the Labor Party came on, you, the government and the opposition was the conservatives versus the liberals. They were the in unresolvable political oppos opposites in our polity. And Labor came along, worked out party discipline and really scrambled the whole system and the and the two more right-wing parties worked out that they had to combine to block Labor. And they have never really been happily married, right? And uh, and there's always this, this debate in the media saying like, oh, the Liberals have to like resolve their ideological differences. They never resolve them. They are they are actually zero sum on a lot of dimensions. One part of the party dominates the other. For a long time, the liberal bit dominated the conservative bit. Now the conservative bit dominates the liberal bit. And the one place it didn't, Frank, dominate, the one place where it was reversed was Queensland. And we now see, in a sense, ironically, the kind of LNPization of the Liberal Party. We see this kind of LNP sensibility that seems to have taken hold. And the reflex is to uh, socially conservative uh, uh, views every time. Quite quite prejudicially, I mean, there's no, no gainsaying the fact that the Nats in November of last year chose to oppose the voice before any of the wording was out, before anything like the review that's only just completed in Parliament now had, has done its work, you know, the committee stage and so forth. Mm. They just declared their position and in a sense they declared the Liberal Party's position as well. They did and, and it's a reminder of how resilient the National Party has been as a, mm -hmm. as a political and electoral force. And self-interested as well. Very self-interested but um, also a great the great survivor. I mean, you know, I remember living in New England in northern New South Wales in the early 2000s and you sort of looked at the scenario up there and you think, how, how is the National Party even going to survive? I mean, all mm. our local seats, federal and state, were, were represented by independents. There was quite a strong discourse of that around that time. Yeah. yeah. And then the 2011 state election came around and it was absolutely resurgent. Um, they won a great pile of seats. They, they won back seats from independents. Um, they demonstrated that they had remained a strong presence in civil society in a lot of regional mm -hmm. and rural areas in ways that, in fact, frankly, the Liberals and, and, and Labor have failed to do on the ground. And we're, we're seeing some of the consequences of that resilience. I mean, it was one of the things that destroyed uh, Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership, surely. was mm -hmm. It wasn't just you know, his own Liberal Party right wing. It was also the coalition agreement and yeah, the constraints on, yeah. on him. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what was in the coalition agreement. No, be because said. Barnaby Joyce said yeah. that the first, second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth priorities was that it remained secret. And he said that publicly and proudly, mm. uh, which was extraordinary uh, to me. Mm. Because it was also the first time they codified that agreement before it used to be a handshake. Well, yeah. Yeah, but we don't. Know. We should be able to know what's in the agreement, particularly when mm. they're in government, because it effectively traded policy positions mm. for ministerial spots. I mean, let's be clear mm. about this. That's that's a matter of public interest yeah. to Absolutely. know whether the prime minister, for example, even had scope to do something like the national energy guarantee or same-sex marriage or move in any way on on the climate change yeah. question. Did he have scope to do that, or was it in fact an explicit commitment? Seeded uh, in the uh, in the in the in the coalition agreement. I mean, I was astounded that, and I still am astounded, frankly, that that in our polity in which we think transparency is a an absolute, you know, a virtue that should always be protected and pursued, um, that there wasn't much more made of that. Well, that, that that government, if if we remind ourselves, did have a bit of a 
difficult relationship with the concept of transparency. That that was a theme of the yeah. of the last government. It, it was, but it's also another way in which you know Australia's political parties don't conform to decent democratic norms. Yeah, that's um, true. All the norms expected of other organisations. Well, that's what I mean, yeah. really. By decent, yeah. that's, that's kind of what I yeah. mean by decent. I mean, we see it. And, and that even goes. stacking and all the rest yeah. of it. But there's yeah. another example. Yeah, you know? and yeah. it goes to things yeah. like the treatment of uh, information yeah. about electors, exactly. for example, and their Exemptions. membership base and their donations and a whole range mm -hmm. of yeah. uh, ways in which they, yeah, as you say, exemptions. Let's take a very quick break and be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're with Democracy Sausage from ANU. Now, Maria, you wanted to pull up a point that uh, Frank just made. Yeah, yeah. So Frank made a really good point about the National Party, right? And um, and it relates to something that Labor is interested in doing. And I think it's good to, to remind people, you know, like unlike the Greens, for example, who, who actually got... I think 400,000 roughly more votes than the National Party at the last election. I think the Greens got about 1.2 million votes and the, the Nats got about 800,000, right. um, give or take. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at the figures. But it goes to show that the Nats, the National Party's votes are super concentrated and they, they're able to translate that into political representation, right? Yeah, to geographic re representation. It, it, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and Labor is currently investigating whether or not to expand the number of seats in the House of Representatives. Yeah, this is quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah which because it goes to that long-held principle that Labor has, which I'm sure Frank can talk to, about one vote, one value, this being a real sort of issue in our political system. And in the, and, and, and Hawke did this in 1884, right? And it would be, it will definitely, if they, if they go through with this, it will definitely change the map. And I can imagine it would also see, it would also boost the number of Greens seats right it just theoretically that should that should happen because their vote is concentrated as well it's just that it's not concentrated in quite the same convenient kind of way but frank do you remember much about how that debate evolved in in like 83 84 I've just put you on the spot. I don't remember it much as a debate, and and of yeah, course, I don't either. Yeah, yeah. And, and Labor did very poorly at the nineteen eighty four yeah. election. I mean, they lost seats in expanded parliament. A ten week they, campaign yeah. will do that too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't remember it as much of a much of a debate. But clearly, you know, the National Party have uh, been under occasional pressure in redistributions when mm. when particularly seats in very isolated, well, you know, sort of, I guess, western parts of New South Wales. So one disappeared, didn't it, in the early 2000s, which uh, mm. I, I can't remember the exact details now, but um, and, and there's usually a bit of a hullabaloo around, around that. 
Uh, the, the one vote, one value debate was much more prominent, of course, during the Whitlam period and was one of the issues on which the double dissolution election and then the, the 1974 joint sitting deliberated. Um, you know, it was uh, it, it, it produced the variation that was allowable, I think, from 20 to 10%. And, and you know, it was the, the country party of the that day. Is, sorry, just to explain, that's the variation in, in numbers of electors in a given electorate. And, exactly. And, and yeah. if you let that variation get too big, you're into gerrymandering territory. And gerrymanders were quite prominent in Australian electoral history, particularly in the states and particularly in upper houses and and, and so forth right around the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, notoriously in South Australia. Yeah. But, but in, in, in a number and of in places. And in fact, Still yeah. Hall uh, yeah. voted to yeah. uh, to end it and effectively ended his premiership in the process. He didn't say it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, um, that, that was a big issue in the, mm. in the Whitlam period. And, and, and Doug Anthony and the, the country, uh, what were they called by then? By then, the, the National Country I think they were the National Country Party. Yeah, yeah. anyway, uh, were, were very much. I mean, that's where the, the, the key opposition to, to, to the Whitlam proposal was, was coming from. Yes, it's um, it's it's a fascinating sort of area. This uh, this question about where the Nats are and where the Libs are, because you know you really do have that sense. I think now that um, that the Nats just hold their position and the Libs sort of quake around a bit and eventually fall into line. And we saw that happen on mm. on a number of things. And Dutton's clearly made the decision at the moment. As I say, he figures that the only people that can remove him are his colleagues, and so he's um he's keeping them happy. And it'll be interesting to see Maria whether uh, um. That changes, as you say, as they get closer to the election, and they think, "Oh, hang on, you know, yeah, my, my yeah. voters." And and how much do you think? Get get both your views on this. How much do you think the voice, the 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 decision they've taken on the voice, because that idea about a broad church, which you know Howard used to talk about a lot, you don't hear it so much now, but as you say, it still it still comes up. That broad church thing seems completely inconsistent with the idea of binding your party room on this question of the voice. If you acknowledge that there's a a wide congregation with their diverse views, and then you say, "But here's the line," you know, I don't really understand why he went down that path. Um, it, it's not entirely clear to me why he made the decision to bind. Cabinets. No, is it just sort of um, the Abbott reflex of maximum opposition all the time? I I imagine I'm thinking as a party leader it might it might on a question like the voice where we're really only one step away from talking about whether or not people are is opposition is racist right you know like that 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 is a subtext of this conversation that we are pasting over with conversations around the constitutional implications mm. and i think having a bunch of powerful and articulate advocates from within his own cabinet advocating for the voice only invites journalists to push him on the logic and the rationale, which is already struggling to bear weight because their positions are actually really very close um, in, in, in the actual brass tacks of the differences between a Canberra voice and, and these regional voices, right? Like they're just nested. Um, mm. um, and I, I, I just think that that would become quite difficult a position for him to uh, maintain, particularly when even conservative constitutional advocates like uh, Greg Craven have sort of looked at the advice from the Solicitor General. Thank you. That's the name. It's the Solicitor General and, uh, you know, many of their concerns are have been reduced. Like I I mean, I you know. Well, I'd the grounds just cut out from under, under them on a whole range of things. You don't really hear, hear anyone running the third chamber of parliament cannot anymore either because it was just. And, Silly and, and thank God for yeah. that, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is the thing, right, with the coalition. Um, Canberra like, voice, I mean, what a lot of nonsense. Well, yeah. they've got a big problem around that because their formal 
policy is is for a legislated Canberra voice. Yeah, and and that's exactly. not going to go away. Yeah, that's not going to go. And away. also, that's going to come back to haunt them. It in will. The months ahead. It will. Yeah. And also, there's the problem they have where if they have regional voices, you can't just you can you can't just have no mechanism whereby those regional voices actually that's right consult with government or consult with the parliament. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, it opens up a whole can of worms, right? Like, you know, are they supposed to be talking to the state governments then? Well, how do you get the state governments to listen to them, right? Well, like, and the state governments, like South Australia now has its own voice. Yeah. Precisely. And, I mean, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of the government for failing to provide the detail, but I think this is actually a red herring. Like, I mean, ultimately, this question is a question of principle and that's what the constitution is is ultimately about it isn't mm. it isn't actually a very prescriptive set of rules and um the political no, science not. literature actually shows that you know like it's a quite a crude measure but the longer your constitution is the the the, the worse the outcomes ultimately because there's no flexibility mm. yeah. in them right and and the question itself ultimately resolves most of these issues because it, it it's very clear that that we must have a voice, but that Parliament dictates what that voice um, looks like. And and to be blunt, there's nothing precluding a future government from saying of the voice is one person that I appoint, which would be a real violation of the spirit of the voice. But in effect, the Parliament has the ability to shape all of those domains. That points the fact that you know inevitably the way it's shaped will be a political process exactly. and it will evolve um i mean the best parallel i can think of is the high court itself the high court itself i mean go indeed. to the constitution have a look and see yeah. if, if if the present high court is is in any way described uh, yes. in, in a, it's not i mean you get the basic framework but there was nothing on how many justices nah. would it be a circuit court or would it sit in a, in in the capital or would it you know was, yeah. i mean there was none of this he makes the point yeah. that you do not freeze complex things matters in the constitution that exactly. that is anti-democratic what you put in the constitution is heads of power to for the mm-hmm. parliament to create and to design and so forth which is what we're doing here and it's entirely mm-hmm. consistent with uh, the way the constitution was set up and with good practice in a democracy and i think what's really kind of interesting right like we we are clearly seeing a trend of de-alignment in, in Australian politics, coming off a really high base. Like, you know, comparatively, Australia has historically had really high levels of what we call party identification. That is, you vote for party A in, in on your 18th birthday and you're 97 in your last election voting, you're voting for party A, okay? 80% of people used to do that. Um, and and that, that has been a trend that's only started to break down in the last 10 to 15 years. And we're now at more than a a third of people doing this and there's no real reason, there's no kind of counter-cyclical thing to kind of point as to why this trend um, would reverse. It may stabilise, right, at this at this level, but I don't see why we should necessarily reverse in a, in a major way. And and so that actually means, and I kind of mentioned, right, what the primary vote for the Coalition and Labor Party was, it was it's collectively um, just under 70%. But that actually means that there is the possibility of building a coalition for the voice out there that isn't dependent on... Mm having the opposition on board. Like that's actually a live possibility now that yeah, is not yeah. has not was not the case at the time of the Republican oh, referendum. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually a really interesting time in politics. And so the sort of historical precedent that that a lot of people are relying on as a heuristic, that data is potentially really unstable and it and and it may be actually a really bad for the coalition to 
to think that that the vote will go down, like it, it's probably going to be quite narrow. Well, this has been the calculation I think that exactly, the government has made and exactly. that the Yes campaign has made, that, that we're not prisoner to that history, we're not hostage to those mm. circumstances forever forward, uh, and it is quite clear, we saw it with the same-sex marriage survey, um, you know, there were a lot of vagaries around and of course it's a different issue, but we saw that the electorate had a sort of an, you know, I described it at the time as a kind of an unfussy support for for that change. It just wasn't something about which ordinary people, for the most part, were particularly animated. They, well, yeah, of course, why not? That's fair. Let's just do that. Uh, you know, and you had all these churchy uh, politicians, you know, getting very hot under the collar about it and talking about it as if the entire future of the country and society and Western civilization and everything else hung on it. And of course, the people didn't decide that. And you get a feeling that we might be seeing some of that same dynamic. Yeah. And what are we? Only 31, 32 days since. We saw history just completely trammeled in the Aston by-election anyway. Yeah, the best hope for it is that enough people, as with the same-sex marriage, judge, oh, it's not going to affect me, mm. whatever. Yes, I'll, you know. Well, or it so is that, going to affect me. And I, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm sorry to cut you off there, but yeah. I, 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 I like to think that there'll be a lot of people who think it's not going to affect me negatively and it seems fair. Yeah, well, and and that's kind of where I think a lot of people, particularly more conservative people, landed with same-sex marriage. So mm. if somehow the yes case can craft or shape a debate around that kind of idea, I think that would be incredibly beneficial for the yes case. I mean, the danger in these... For, with a proposal like this is always that the argument about special treatment. Exactly. We've seen Abbott and others trot out just in recent days, you know, why do you give special arrangements for 4% of the population or whatever? If that argument takes hold, there's going to be trouble, I think, exactly. for the US case. But if you can counter that argument by saying that it's not going to, this this change will not affect most people and it's a fair thing for those who it will affect um, I, I think you're much stronger ground to get a yes case up. Um, but and, and, you've got and, to do it in four states, remember, and that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, so, that, it's yeah. a high hurdle here. I mean, yeah. f I don't see too many people yeah. questioning the idea that uh, a, a majority of votes across the nation is, is out of reach at all. Uh, that's probably on the basis of what yep. we understand going to happen. The question then is where do those, uh, you know, where do you find your four out of six states? And this, you know, is one of the other problems with the uh, mm. the, the constitution that's currently written is that uh, the ACT and then Northern Territory, the Northern Territory being mm. uh, the location of the highest concentrations of Indigenous people, and uh, and the ACT, mm. of course, being a progressive jurisdiction, not that far short now in population of Tasmania, uh, and does not count as a state. And so, ACT will vote yes. Victoria will probably vote yes. Good chance South Australia will vote. Northern Territory will vote yes. yes. Uh, sorry, um, New South Wales will vote yes. I mean, if you get New South Wales and Victoria voting yes, you're, you're getting pretty close to your your, your population fifty percent anyway, yeah. um, because of the, just this you know load of population there. So yeah. it's then a question of well, do you get South Australia? Do you get get Tasmania? Perhaps where the Liberal government there is very very supportive of it. Um, there's a strong discourse there. You know, I, I'm I'm more optimistic at this stage than, uh, of, of of the yes case getting up than I have been pretty much at any point so far. And 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 in reality, the yes case hasn't even kicked off yet. Um, so there's a bit to go. Yeah, no, I think I'd agree. I'm certainly more optimistic than I was in January coming mm. out of the summer. Um, yeah, I mean, the worst case 
uh, around that issue, the, the, the kind of double majority issue, is a repeat of 1977, where you had a proposal, I think, for simultaneous elections. 62% yes vote, and it went down. It yeah. was 3-3. Three, three. Because, yes, I mean, New South Wales voted yeah. yes. Victoria voted yes. I can't remember the other one was. But basically it went down because of uh, it didn't get to 4-2. Um, yeah. So it can mm. happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, it became more likely, of course, once the territories got votes because they didn't even get votes, remember, until uh, oh, really? uh, in, in, in referendum. Things yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah, so, so yeah. the territory votes count towards the national. They do now. Uh, yeah, yeah, the national yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. amount, you know, the national mm. proportion. Yeah. But they don't count as yeah, jurisdictions yeah. in. Yeah, so yeah. it's, yeah. Um, I mean, that's just something that should change but probably won't. Yeah, no. I mean, it's really fascinating to think about this in terms of the dynamic, the political dynamics for this. We were talking before about, you know, the calculation Dutton's making and, you know, you said, Frank, perhaps he's hoping for events to turn his way. It's it's actually quite hard to forecast even what the res- what the dynamics would be out of the two scenarios of the uh, yes case getting up or not getting up does that i mean for example if it if it uh, if a majority of australians vote for um for the voice but it doesn't get that state um mm. hurdle doesn't clear that state hurdle how do people view dutton in that circumstance yeah. He, he he has vandalised, in a sense, this attempt, but he hasn't convinced a majority of Australians in the process. Does that actually really serve his interests? I mean, I'm mm. I'm pretty sure he'd take it. He'd take it as a win. He think yeah. that he'd take some skin off Albanese in that regard. Yeah. There'd be some blame attaching to the government in terms of the way it's gone about it. Very hard to read mm. what what the um, longer term implications for either side would be. I know that's a secondary issue, frankly, behind mm. the, the the substance of the referendum itself. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I've thought about that one. I honestly don't know. I mm. don't know which way the debate would go mm. afterwards. Um, I mean, there is a, a view that says it, it, you know if the voice doesn't succeed, it mightn't have any terribly negative political effects on the government. Um, that that they may yeah. Yeah, I've heard be that. Be more too. negative for the opposition. Um, I honestly don't know. It'd be just guesswork on my part. Yeah. Where yeah. does one look for precedence? There isn't one. Well, really. that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. And um, I, I think I think there is more flexibility, like just from a political scenario, to consider the political ramifications for the government. I mean, the the government is taking a stand on principle and taking a risk, which is more than any government has done on this issue. Um, for 15 years when it really kind of came onto the agenda. You know, and I think that's actually kind of important. I think, it is. Know. It's worth acknowledging that yeah. because it, 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 the, the, the new PM on the very moment he took over mm. stood up at the lectern on, on election night and made this his year one priority and or, you know, his, yeah. his first term priority at least and uh, certainly leaned into it in, in year one. Um, we're still in year one, I should note, of, of the Prime Minister's uh, first term. Mm. Um, yeah, true. So, uh, you know, that that has taken a degree of courage and it does come with some risks. But if it gets up, uh, as, as as we've been saying, you know, we, we think it will, that, that that's a pretty significant achievement for any government, really, and particularly Labor's. You know, we, we often hear about, you know, eight, eight, eight out of 44 referendum questions have succeeded. Only one of those eight was put forward by a Labor government. Labor's only yeah. ever successfully changed mm. the constitution once. Mm. And and three of them were on one day in 1977, yeah. three yes votes on one day in 1977. Yeah. Right, yeah. Mm. I mean, I mean, this kind of sort of circles back to the point we were talking about right at the beginning, you know, Labor's quote unquote honeymoon. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of Labor. Some of it, I think, 
just unfair. Like if you if you are a natural Greens voter and you're slagging off the government, that's fine. But like they're not really the, – the ALP government isn't trying to measure itself by a Greens voter standard. That's, you know, that's because those two parties actually don't get along and don't like each other for good reason. Um, they're both right. Yeah, that's a – well, sure, you know, exactly. Well, they compete for the same constituency. Precisely, so, precisely. Yeah. And um, and one is a party of government and one isn't and that, that just ultimately shame, shapes – the frame of view in which they view the world and the um, realities of having to govern. But Labor, Labor is taking risks and is trying to actually solve problems and that means making trade-offs. Yeah, well, and, I, and I think that is actually being recognised in enough parts of the electorate that this, this honeymoon is, is being extended and it's actually really great to see an internal debate within Labor over, for example, lifting the job seeker rate. It reminds me of when the left would pop up and complain in the eighties during the Hawke government, mm. you know, pushing pushing that government to to think through its policy choices in a more rigorous way. It's an interesting uh, comparison though, because I think it's true to say as a generalization that um the policy process was more transparent then than it is now, and that there was a little more kind of what you might call mess or friction within the within the Labor government and which made it into the public realm, and which actually in the end, I think, added to the quality of decision making in the process. So I think you can take internal unity and discipline and message management and so forth, you can take it too far. And I think basically this is... Uh, uh, an ill of contemporary politics, not just this government, mm. but generally this sort of tendency to be sort of almost pathologically disciplined and, and to stifle creativity and, and keep things too tidy. Yeah, and I, I think certainly around domestic policy, this government's been pretty good actually in being willing to l allow debates to run. I mean, The Voice is a good example actually. Mm. Um in, uh, yes, I mean, providing some space for dissent within the party, uh, allowing reports to get out there from the various inquiries that it's commissioned that are, are actually front-running, mm -hmm. that, that are well ahead of what the government's prepared to do. We saw that with, with Job Seeker. Mm -hmm. um, the one issue where it, it um, has shown no inclination whatsoever to encourage debate is on AUKUS and mm -hmm. that's why Keating's intervention was so critical because he is, you know, the party's elder statesman going to the National Press Club and giving him hell mm. and it opened up the debate finally um, yeah. and it exposed the fact that they're not willing to have a debate around the issues centred on AUKUS. In um, a way though, I think they would yeah. have been glad that he over-egged it because it gave them some capacity to kind of demonize that side yeah. Um, yeah. because, you know, Keating's rather percussive approach, maybe concussive might even be better, um, <laughs> you know, somewhat, uh, um, you know, it, it, he would struggle to have people sort of stand up, stand next to him, uh, you know, when he was sort of uh, mm. dismantling Wong's credibility and... And, and, yeah. and describing her work as consular work, um, for example. Yeah, there was that dreadful lie about I'm wearing lays around her neck in the Pacific yeah, or something. That's not foreign uh, policy. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. it, he went too far. That's there's no doubt about that. Um, but he also has credibility. No, Inevitably, he has immense yeah. credibility yeah. within public culture and especially within the Labor Party and Labor movement. And that that is you know, that, that is the space, if you like, where there is a, a, a real reluctance to encourage debate. And, of course, the main way in which 
Labor has discouraged debate is by refusing to articulate, you know, the strategic goals behind AUKUS. You mm. know, what's it all about? Mm -hmm. What 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 is the what is really the thinking behind it? And in in failing to do that, they make it hard and slippery. Um, for others to actually come in and, mm. and, and, and actually engage in any contestation. They're having their review has declared some more reviews. Yeah. Maybe we'll yeah, find that's out. Right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean to be fair, I think on, on a whole range of issues that they have allowed debate to happen. And that okay. has been incredibly liberating, I think, for the public culture. Yeah, yeah. Um so from Labor Royalty just quickly to um <laughs> to, to actual arcane royalty. Um <laughs> What what's happening? The coronation is happening. As I had to, you know, had to really think about that. You can tell I'm heavily engaged in this. Um, and ministers are being asked, as as Jim Chalmers was this morning, uh, as we record this, was asked um, whether he'd be standing and swearing allegiance to the king. The prime minister is obviously going to the coronation. Uh, every state governor and the governor general are going, so that. A former Governor General has to sort of step yeah. in. He's been tagged and uh, has to has to step in. What sort of bizarre business is this? Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> well, I heard that um, we'll all be invited to swear allegiance through our TVs yeah. um, to to the new King Charles. Um, I thought my TV was watching. Well, this. <laughs> if it's an Amazon TV, it almost certainly Probably is. is. Yeah, yeah no, it's yeah. a Huawei. Actually. Yeah. All yeah. oh, right. Well, yeah. well, nothing wrong there. Someone's watching it. Exactly. But um, yeah. So, so as I understand it, in the in the in the coronation ceremony, the peers swear allegiance to the king. That makes a lot of sense to me. You know, that's sort of like a reinforcing of their sort of own status. But I just sort of thought, like, oh, well, this is like an interesting thought from the palace, like to democratize this. Process and and my favourite bit in the statement was where they would invite everyone from the Commonwealth and the Empire, like or the ex Empire more broadly. It's like, do you guys not kind of get like where this discourse is at right now? I just I just thought that was very well. Maybe they do. Just, maybe I mean we, we've still got their flag and our flag, well, and we, we we you know we've been given the nudge several times, but we're still living it. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know. I just thought this was. I th you know, it, it, it makes sense, bizarre. I suppose, in London and in Buckingham Palace, but I don't, I just think it's odd. I, I mean, I don't know what Jim Chalmers said in reply, but surely. He said that he's already sworn an oath in Parliament uh, and uh, that he doesn't, uh, yeah. you know, something like that. I mean, him. He, he yeah. did well. I mean, the sense the point is kind of if he'd said, no, I'm not going to, that's ridiculous, it wouldn't have lost him a single vote. And that's the no. point, isn't it, about the monarchy mm. in Australia today? I mean. The monarchy is not a presence in Australian public culture. I mean, he was. I know the ABC wore black ties for two weeks. Oh, now. And, and it and was contrived, was and people thought it was really, really weird. And and it went back to being yeah, a BBC yeah, derivative for a couple yeah, of weeks. And it, and it looked and sounded ridiculous. And they made. I mean, they really did look silly sending so many people to London for the funeral, all the rest of it. And at least we've learned from that. We're not sending too many people to the coronation, except every state government and the, and the governor. <laughs> well, they are the monarch's representatives. That's like, I, if they weren't going, I think we'd scratch our heads. The states are the monarch's representatives. Well, they're sovereign states, yeah, dude. Like, 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 yeah. That kind of yeah. Uh, but, you know, 
in, in a sense, it sort of underlines, doesn't it, the, the, the dysfunctionality of this system now mm. for us because, I mean, the whole purpose of it is that it, it is meant to kind of just allow things to run smoothly and all the rest yeah. of it. In fact, but, but you know, we have a coronation and we have to bring in, as you say, a former Governor-General to do a job that should, should at the very least have been covered by one of the state governors, governors staying home. I mean, a, a, a radical concept. Yeah. Imagine if one of them had stayed home, yeah. Yeah. you know, and to do their job, the job that they're paid large sums of money to do. Yeah. That would have been extraordinary. Yeah, it? yeah. Now, look, we've we've uh, gone way over time here and I'm, I'm going to risk going even further over time because I just want to read you this letter. And But I do this by way of encouraging listeners to... Um, to send us letters and uh, uh, on email that is democracy sausage at anu.edu.au and this one um, is from uh, Andrew Rothberg uh, he says hi Mark and Maria love the podcast it's become a staple I listen to weekly I like that um, as you gave your email address at the end of the Trent Zimmerman episode I thought I'd share the nagging thought I had throughout. Trent said the Liberal Party is the party of buying houses and aspiration. That may have been true for their traditional base, boomers, but it isn't the case now. Their policies, and he lists negative gearing and capital gains tax in particular, has made it harder for Gen X and Z to buy a house, myself included, and this has really put a wet blanket on aspiration. Uh, I recently heard Senator James Patterson talk of similar values, uh, which strikes me as uh, odd given it's demonstrably true that their policies have made buying a home more difficult. More of a vent than a question, but he wanted to get it off his chest. I thought I'd just put that to you, Maria, because it's it, it's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, we it's the party of aspiration, but the aspiration to own a home, as we discussed with Trent and others, has uh, become just that, an aspiration. Well, yes, and I, I, there's a good point there, and I, I guess I would just remind people um, there was that brief window where um, I believe Scott Morrison as treasurer was interested in tackling the negative gearing tax concessions mm. and i think i think um i guess the most generous interpretation of this is that there are parts of the liberal party that have recognized that they are killing the golden goose that lays the golden eggs by by locking young people out of the very thing that allows them to accumulate wealth and and vote liberal and vote liberal <laughs> menzies if we go right back mm. to menzies menzies understood well, the value it, of it's the great ownership. achievement of really the menzies era i mean uh Home ownership went from fifty percent of owner occupiers to seventy one uh, in the space of fifteen years. Yeah, I mean this is one of the great transformations, really, yeah. uh, in Australian history, in in such a short period of time, and and it, it coincides almost precisely with that that era of lib you know, of coalition rule uh, under Menzies and I mean, Menzies and, be, and Menzies you know, through that period. Yeah. Also perfected the political side of it as well as getting that economic side of it. He then perfected the political side of of talking to those households, yeah. of talking to the people who are running those households, of of the sort women of politically enfranchising women in mm. the, into the debate. I mean, not yeah. necessarily in what you'd call a feminist way, but certainly in a way that 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 uh, brought them into the conversation, yeah. and that was politically extremely effective. Yep, absolutely, and and it was a pragmatic conservatism that required a strong hand in dealing with banks. Uh, over issues like lending, um, you know, that they could do a lot worse than actually look at that kind of pragmatic conservatism and Menzies and 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 revive some aspects of it. And pair thought. economic policy with a mm. conversation with the electors mm. you need to get. Now, you don't mm. do that if the electors you need to get don't hold the same view as you on questions like the participation of women in the economy, on matters like climate change, corruption, the voice, these sorts of things. And that that's, you know, goes back to what we were saying before. So 
there's a real job of work there for the conservative side of politics to think about where how it how it rebuilds a political constituency. If we look at those those recent polls we were talking about earlier, and we were talking about primary votes, if you take out the nationals vote from the primary vote of the coalition at the moment, according to Resolve and a few others, it's in the twenties. Mm. The Liberal Party's primary vote is in the twenties yeah. at the moment. Now we're between elections and all that, all those caveats, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, they're they're in a world of pain and. Um, Perhaps, perhaps they're also a bit deluded about how deep that that trench is. We'll see. Hey, look, it's been a really great conversation, a lot of fun as of usual. Uh, we never really got to talk much in detail about the budget, but what the hell? I mean, everyone budget else is talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's talk about it when we actually know what's in it. Yeah, um, uh, much, uselessly yeah. speculating. Yeah, that's right. So, thanks, Maria. Thanks, Frank. Really thanks, great Ryan. to talk. Thanks, and, Frank. Um, yeah, thank you. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe if you can, and then you can give us a rating. Uh, and until next week, in fact, it'll be a bit late next week because we will wait till after the budget, uh, which means sort of uh, we'll probably have a chat on on about Wednesday morning, and uh, and you can get the podcast after that. Look forward to talking to you then. Bye for now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.